So we had the joy and the celebration yesterday of celebrating another wedding here at the church. Uh, it seems like every weekend there's almost someone else gets married and there's a great young couple in the church getting married yesterday. And you know, as a pastor, I love doing weddings. That's one of those things that's a really enjoyable thing to do. But as much as I, I love doing it, I also find myself still getting a little nervous when I do them. Now, understand, you know I did young adult ministry here for five or six years, so I have done a ton of weddings, okay, like 50-some weddings. I'm not nervous because I'm, I'm sort of not sure what I'm doing. I think I'm nervous just because, like, this is a big day for them, you know, and I don't want to screw it up, right? Um, you know, she's been dreaming about this day since she was seven, and it ends up on America's Funniest Home Videos, right? <laughs> Pastor says the wrong names, pastor passes out, pastor throws up, pastor does something. You just, you don't want to be that guy, you know? You just really don't want to be that guy. Now, I've never had a disaster in a wedding, but there is a first time for everything. As a church, we've been taking the last couple of weeks and the next few weeks to think together about this topic of revival. Revival. We're taking an honest look. Can we take just an honest look at our, our own souls? And an honest look at our church. And we're asking, how are we really doing? We want to live life without pretending. How are we really doing? Am I alive to God? Are you alive to God? Are we alive to God? Is God here in our midst together? Last week we said that this is such an important topic that we need to reflect upon because it's so easy to be a sleepy Christian. And what's true of us individually is true of us corporately. It's not just easy to be a sleepy Christian. Secondly, we saw it's so easy to be a sleepy church. And we said, we're tired of it. <laughs> we're tired of it, right? We're tired of our best spiritual days being in the past, when we first became a Christian, perhaps when we were in college, when we went on that great missions trip, our best spiritual days being some form of, of yesterday. We want our best spiritual days to be today. Today. And we want to hear the alarm bell that's, that's a ringing. Jesus himself, not here commanding us to wake yourselves up, dress yourselves up, do a better job than you're currently doing, but Jesus himself here to wake us up himself, knocking persistently, calling our names. He asks, do you have ears to hear? Ears to hear that you have everything you need to be awake today because Jesus is here to wake you up today. And we have everything that we need to be spiritually alive today because Jesus is alive today. Amen? Someone give me an amen on that one, okay? And we have everything that we need so that our best spiritual days won't be yesterday because Jesus is here today. Now this week is really an extended application of everything that we said last week. If I preached for an hour, then I'd say everything I said this week, last week, and it would have been an hour long. But if I preached for an hour, there'd be sleepy Christians all up in here, literally. So uh, we decided that it'd be better to, to split it in two. And so having worked through the text last week, we want to uh, make some, uh, just amplify those applications by looking at a number of different texts in Scripture this week. And what we're wanting to, to see is that to be awake, to be alive, to have an experience of revival, it's vital for us to hear Jesus clearly. 
It's vital for us to hear Jesus clearly, to have the the ears to hear and understand his grace in a careful, nuanced, accurate way. Because throughout church history, there's been confusion, and indeed still today there's confusion as, as two mistakes have particularly crept in to make us misunderstand what the gospel really is. Two other voices that have caused confusion whispering in our ears as we listen to Jesus so that we hear Jesus, yes, but also these errors and we end up with with a distorted gospel. With an understanding of grace that is not the understanding Christ intended in the first place. And so this morning I want to look at these two errors, these two misunderstandings of grace that true grace might really wake us up. That true grace might make us alive. That true grace might spark revival. So, together, point one. Mistake number one. When it comes to misunderstanding the gospel, misunderstanding his grace. Mistake number one is legalism. Legalism. Now, in its most overt form, Mr. Legalism comes to us and says, Jesus is here that's good news. And now you can be saved if you're a good person. You can be saved if you're a good person. If you obey God's law, hence the name legalism. If you obey God's law, then he'll accept you. So all you have to do is is do what's right and work hard and love others and be good to your neighbors and be good to your family. Be a good person. Generally be an upstanding member of society and everything will work out in the end. Now, this view of legalism is, is reasonable enough to be the prevailing view of Christianity in our culture. According to a Pew Research study in 2014, roughly 7 in 10 Americans, 72% of Americans, say they believe in heaven as a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. Heaven, place for those who have led good lives. Similarly, roughly 6 in 10, so 60%, but that's actually the majority of those who believe in hell, believe in hell as a place for people who have led bad lives. It seems reasonable enough. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And everyone seems to agree, apart from the gatekeeper, God himself. Right? Bible is very clear. The Bible is very clear that being a good person will not save you. And I believe this morning you may be a good person. I have no problem believing you're a better person than I am. But the Bible just makes very clear that being a good person won't save you. Listen to Romans 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified before God. How clear is that? By works of the law, by following the commandments, by being a good person, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Or Galatians 2.16, another of my favorites, unpacks this a little more when it says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, by being a good person, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ. Amen. We also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ 
and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. So this legalistic view that you know, good people will be saved might be common but it certainly can't be called Christian. Even if that is the prevailing view in a nominally Christian culture, it's certainly not the Christianity that's delivered to us by Christ himself. In fact, we know, don't we know, that the gospel speaks a better word, and that word is grace. That word is grace. Two epic texts on this theme. First of all, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Titus 3, verse 5. God saved us. Why? Not because of works, but done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The key point for us to understand is that legalism desperately underestimates the grace of God. It desperately underestimates the grace of God because we're not saved on the basis of what we do. We're saved on the basis of what God has done for us. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. It is free. It is grace. And what an important word... If you're new to our church this morning, if you've wandered in and this is your first time here, first of all, you need to know every sermon is about grace. Okay? And the punchline every week is Jesus. Okay? And every week I find a new way to try and surprise you with grace in Jesus. Okay? <laughs> so just know this is what's going to happen next week. Right? This is the same message. Oh, why is that the case? Because it's the most important thing you could ever understand and we could ever understand for our own souls. Being a good person will not save you. Christianity is not about becoming a better person. You don't need to dress yourself up and make your way to God because Christ has stripped himself naked and made his way to us. It's not about being a good person. That's legalism. If this isn't your second week, if you've been coming for a while and you've heard a thousand of these grace sermons and a thousand of these Jesus punchlines and I hope you come back for a thousand more, don't we still need to be careful? Don't we still need to be very careful about the dangers of legalism? One theologian says, around and underneath overt legalism, there gathers a web that extends more widely. Legalism is a much more subtle reality than we tend to assume. He's saying, even if you don't subscribe to a legalistic theology, don't assume that your life is free from legalism. He continues, it's all too possible to have an evangelical heart, an evangelical head, sorry, and a legalistic heart. All too possible to have an evangelical head and a legalistic heart. Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher, once told a story. And it's the story of a king, a gardener, and the nobleman. So once upon a, land, once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a king who, who owned everything in the land. 
And one day there was a gardener, a poor gardener, who happened to grow just an enormous carrot. And so this poor gardener took this carrot to the king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or will ever grow. And I'm giving it to you now as a token of my affection and my respect for you. The king looked at him and and discerned his heart. And just as he turned to leave, said to him, Wait, I own the field next to your garden. And I would like to give that to you free of charge because you are a good steward of this land and I want to see those blessings multiply. The gardener himself was amazed and, and delighted and went home rejoicing. Now, at the same time, there was a nobleman at court seeing the scene unfold and he thinks to himself, three acres for a carrot? I'm coming back tomorrow with a horse. In this rich man arrives and he says, O king, here is a great stallion. It is the greatest stallion I have ever bred or ever will breed. And I give it to you now as a token of my affection and esteem. And the king said, thanks. (laughs) Perplexed, the king turned and said to the nobleman, "Let, let me explain. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. You see how legalism can play out in the Christian experience. Yes, we know we're saved by grace. We got it. But now we're going to relate to God on the basis of the things that that we do. And so ask yourself this morning. Let's ask ourselves this morning, just on a a heart level, impulse uh, kind of way. Are are you like the gardener or are you like the nobleman? (laughs) Do you find that you, uh, your obedience flows from a desire to get something from God or out of gratitude for what God has already given you? Do you find that your, your service has become a, a dull checklist of things that you ought to do instead of a delight that deepens your relationship with the one who loves you? Do you find that you relate to God on the basis of what you do or on the basis of what he has done for you? We need to be careful. I want to be careful not to have an evangelical heart, head, sorry, and a legalistic heart, hearing these whispers of legalism. So that's point one over here. Whispering in our ear as we come to the gospel is the voice of legalism, distorting our understanding of grace. Now, Problematically, in the other ear, we have, a, we have another voice. Mr. Legalism over here and Miss License over here. Now, in her most overt form, Miss License comes and whispers to us and says, saved by works. That's ridiculous. No one can be saved by works. Jesus has come. You are saved by grace. So you can live however you want to live. Jesus has come, the gospel is near. It doesn't really matter what you do. And again, doesn't it seem reasonable? There's a logic to it. If we're saved by grace, completely independent of our own works, then does it really matter what we do? God will accept me irrespective of how I do or or what I do or even why I do it. In fact, the more I sin, the more grace God's going to (laughs) give. So let's eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Let's eat, drink, and, and be merry. And let's give ourselves permission for those, you know, those socially acceptable sins. Materialism, pride, envy. 
Or let's certainly let ourselves off the hook for those private sins of, of, of lust, of, of pride, of, of, of gossip. And again, we all agree, everyone agrees, apart from God, right? Who comes to us and says very directly, these two very clear texts on this. First of all, Romans 6 verse 15. What then, Paul says, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Can we just live how we want because all is grace? By no means, he says. In verse 1 of the same chapter, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The more we sin, the more grace we get. By no means, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it. So again, this view that it doesn't matter how you live may be reasonable, but it certainly can't be called Christian. And again, the gospel speaks a better word. What word does it speak? Grace. Now this is, this is profoundly important. See, if you catch the connection here between grace and works. First of all, from, from Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. How did it appear? In Jesus. I hope that makes your heart rise. Bringing salvation for all people. Yes, he has come and saved us, not by our works, but by sheer grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us for obedience. Consider Ephesians 2. Again, we're so familiar with those words in verses 8 and 9. For grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works that no man may boast. But then comes verse 10, which we tend not to memorize. Which says, for we are God's workmanship, created and created to do good works, which which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace results in a life of obedience. So grace doesn't lead to license. Grace frees us for obedience. And the key point here is that the antidote to legalism is grace. And the antidote to license is grace as well. We're understanding how profoundly important this is. That it's, it's a mistake to think of legalism and grace as polar opposites and we're to somehow navigate a path in the middle you know so if you're being a bit legalistic be a bit more licentious okay and if you're being too licentious then be more legalistic Uh, if you're in the middle you're licentiously legalistic you're an absolute disaster okay absolute nightmare to be around okay don't think of these things as, as opposites that were somehow to navigate some place in between. Scripture never prescribes one as the antidote to the other. Rather, Scripture prescribes grace as the antidote to both. One writer says, I love this, legalism and license are not so much antithetical to each other as they are both antithetical to grace. Legalism and license aren't antithetical to each other. They're both antithetical to grace. Legalism underestimates God's grace because it says, you know, I'm going to be saved on the basis of what I do. But license also underestimates God's grace because it fails to grasp 
the goodness of our God and the goodness of his commands. It fails to grasp the goodness of God and the goodness of his commands. So legalism says, God won't bless me unless I obey. And license says, to be blessed, I must go my own way. To be blessed, I must go my own way. As if, you know, as if God is like up in the sky and he looks down and he says, what do they find fun? I'm going to forbid it. You know, what are they enjoying? No more, right? Ten commandments, ten things they want to do, right? Um, (laughs) I've got them now, right? As if that is how our good and gracious God interacts with us, his people, you see how, how, how licentiousness underestimates his, his grace because he's given us the blueprint for our flourishing and so the path of happiness is the path of obedience. The path of happiness is the path of obedience. So when we think of God's law as burdensome or limiting or restrictive, we're underestimating his goodness and his grace toward us. Now again... Let's lean into this idea a little more. Let's press into it a little more. Because even if you wouldn't say, okay, I'm saved by grace, I can do whatever I want, there's still a more subtle version of this that can come into our lives. A subtle version that we shouldn't assume we're free from license. In the same way that it's all too possible to have an evangelical head and a legalistic heart, it's possible to have an evangelical head and a licentious heart. And I think this danger is almost particularly true for us in our day. Why? Well, theologians talk about license as antinomianism. Because why would you use a simple word when a complicated one will do, right? Uh, two Greek words, anti or anti, contextualizing here, um, anti meaning against, and nomos meaning law. So to be licentious is to be against the law. Now, the spirit of license is is alive today, but I think she wears a a subtler shade. Not so much anti-nomos, against law, as auto-nomos, self-law. Autonomy is the new absolute of our day. It's not so much that there are are no rules, are no laws, are no boundaries, as much as it is everyone has to decide what the rules, laws, and boundaries will be for themselves. The only universal is you can't force anyone else to agree with your conclusions. A culture of self-law where where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Now, this can create, I think, for believers, I feel it, I'm sure you feel it as well, a, a sense of what we could call cultural isolation. Cultural isolation because you feel like a bigot and you feel like an extremist for holding just biblical views. Pretty old school, traditional biblical views. And yet you feel like a bigot and an extremist for believing things that People have believed for the history of the world, and in fact, the majority of the world still believes today. And so what this cultural moment calls for, I think, is a sense of courage, because it's very easy for us in this day of autonomous, in this day of autonomy, in this day of license to capitulate and just soften our stance on certain issues in order to get along. 
surrender to the tyranny of this new license by, by watering down our convictions. Instead, the scriptures would call us to, we could call it compassionate courage or compassionate convictions where we hold fast to those things that are dear. That the gospel is the only hope of the world and that God's path is the only path that will really enable people to be everything that they long to be. It's the great ironic turnaround, isn't it? This day of autonomy and, 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 and self-rule where you just must you know, flourish into who you really are. The scripture says, amen. And here's how you do it. You want to be everything God ever designed you to be? Then out of grace, follow him with joyful obedience. History, friends. History. Or at least eternity. Will show that autonomy, self-law, is not as good, not as kind, not as healthy, not as prosperous as the rule of our gracious God. We need the eyes to see when tempted to compromise that we need to hold on to those truths that are self-evident to us from the scriptures that we would have not just an evangelical head but an evangelical heart. So, one side, legalism whispers, you got to be a better person. On the other side, Miss License whispers, it doesn't really matter what kind of person you are at all. Both whispers come to us and distort the true gospel so that we misunderstand grace. And I hope you've seen from our time together that the error is the same. The error from Mr. and Mrs. is underestimating the gospel. And so the medicine for both is the same. God's grace to us in Christ. Yesterday's wedding did not turn out to be a disaster. Okay? There's a first time for everything, it's coming, but not this weekend, praise the Lord. Okay, maybe he'll come back before it happens, right? But can you imagine Mr. Legalism and Miss License got married? Here we are in the sanctuary, they're standing at the front, we've all gathered round, and it's time, it's time for the vows. And so here comes Mr. Legalism and he looks a little stressed and he's a little tense and he's got sweat in his foreheads and he's rubbing his hands and he says, I, Legalism, take you license to be my lawfully wedded wife and I do promise and covenant to be your loving and faithful husband. In sickness and in health and I'll do everything I can to make sure that it's health. In plenty and in want and honestly, no one will work harder than me to make sure that we have plenty. In joy and in sorrow, I'm sure some bad things will come, but let's not think about that. Let's focus on the good things. Let's focus on the good things. We'll do everything that we can to be happy. Please just don't leave me. Right? We're kind of like, that's weird. <laughs> you know? That's like the weirdest vow I've ever heard. But it doesn't last long because now comes Miss License, who says, yes, and I license. Uh, yes, you know, I take you legalism to be my lawfully wedded husband and a promise and covenant to be your mostly loving and somewhat faithful wife. You know, if things are going well, you can count on me. <laughs> things start going south, yeah, not so much. But hey, again, let's not think about it. Let's just, let's just all get along. 
You understand that our laughter is my message. Because we all know it's inherently absurd for a couple to approach each other that way. And yet so often we'll approach God in those two ways. When all along he has come as the perfect groom for his people. So drawn to them, so in love with them, so desirous of intimate relationship with them that he would stop at nothing, even death at a cross, that he might be with them. And now he calls us to himself. He wakes us up by his grace that we might not just be saved eternally, but follow him with joyful obedience today. So legalism comes to us and says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And license says, I'm accepted, so it doesn't matter if I obey. And grace says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. A gospel that saves for eternity. A free grace for salvation. And a gospel that equips equips for time. Joyful obedience in Christ. And when we find that mix, when we free ourselves from these whispers, we find life, we find gratitude, we find joy. We come awake, we come alive. We find that we're revived. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, there's something so great about the gospel, because as we're here this morning, we're here as sleepy Christians, we're here as sleepy church, we're here as legalists, we're here as uh, the licentious, and yet you draw near to us all by your grace to wake us up to the glory of salvation and to the joy of obedience. And so, Lord, would we recover this gospel, this gospel that speaks grace for today as well as tomorrow and for every tomorrow after that. We pray these things knowing, Lord, that we can be awake because you've woken us and we can be alive because you are alive. So it's in his perfect name that we pray. Amen.